I want to talk today about faith and authority. I'm going to start by retelling you very briefly the story of the centurion who came to Jesus with the sick servant. You remember his servant was paralyzed and in pain, and he came to meet Jesus on the road, and he asked Jesus to come and heal his servant, and Jesus said, I will go. And the the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And now when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such a great understanding of authority in anyone in Israel. Is that what he said? No, he said, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I'm going to go on to read what else he said because it's applicable to what we're reading and talking about this morning. After he commended the man for his faith... He said, And I say to you that many shall come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way and let it be done to you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very hour. So we have a picture of Jesus and his commending of the centurion for his faith and And the centurion's faith was displayed in that he said he understood authority and he trusted Jesus completely because he was a man in authority. We have another place that talks about authority uh, that's very familiar to us where Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he gives the great commission to his disciples. And this is the Jesus, this one whose authority the centurion grasped clearly. And the disciples also had some understanding of his authority. If you remember, at one time, the disciples were out in a boat, and the storm was coming up, and they were afraid. And out on the water, they saw someone walking toward them, and it was Jesus. And Jesus said, don't worry, it's me. It's me, Jesus. And you remember what Peter does. He stands up in the side of the boat, And I'm going to do this thing with the words again. He says to Jesus, Lord, ask me and I'll come walking out on the water to you. Is that what he said? He said, Lord, command me. Command me. Now you've read that before, right? Who's read that before? How many of you spent a lot of time thinking about the idea that Peter didn't say ask me, but he said command me? Me neither. But you see, Peter understood Jesus' authority. And so when Peter said, I want to, thought, I want to go walk out on that water, do you know what he said? He said, I'll just ask the Lord to command me to do it. And his authority will, will carry me. And you know the rest of the story. Peter doubted. And Jesus rebuked him for doubting as he went out on the water. How many of you have ever asked someone else to command you? 
I think a few of you have. You might not have used that word. You might have said, uh, tell me what to do. Right? Tell me what to do. But you understood that you were under authority. But it's not real common. It's not a real common thing that we say. We hear it once in a while. Perhaps once in a while we say something like it. But to understand that the disciples knew Jesus' power and they knew his authority and they just simply said to him, command me, Peter said. Think about Jesus in his role as the commander of the hosts of heaven. The angels come to announce the birth of Jesus to the shepherds on the hillside. An angel appears and the shepherds are terribly frightened. Why do you think the angel... And then he's joined by a multitude of the heavenly hosts, right? And that made him more frightened, I'm sure. Why do you think they were frightened? What was so fearful about these angels? What were the angels like? I've been looking ever since... uh, before Christmas, I've been looking at all the angels I could find in stores. You know, little angel anythings, angel dolls, angel tree toppers, whatever you want to find. What do you know about what do you what do you know about angels that you find for sale and uh, little statue angels you find for sale or dolls anywhere? What do you know about them? What's that? They are all women. They're not scary. They're very effeminate. Sometimes they're holding a little lamp. Sometimes they're holding a rosary in their hand, right? But that's what you find when you... I was at, I was at uh, Cracker Barrel and I, they had 20 or 30 angels in there before Christmas. I looked at all of them and not one man angel there. All women. Nice, done, nice hairdos. Very beautiful, but not scary. The heavenly hosts joined the angel who was making the announcement. The hosts of heaven. Who are the hosts of heaven? These are the armies of God. Jesus is their commander. In Revelation, you have the picture of Jesus. Revelation 19, you have the picture of Jesus riding forth to take the earth. And who rides behind him on white horses? The heavenly hosts ride behind him on white horses to take the earth. So consider this scene in Bethlehem on the hillside as the angel is announcing to the shepherds, And as the angelic hosts join this angel to announce to the shepherds the birth of Jesus, what are they saying? What are they announcing? They're announcing the birth of their supreme commander to a woman. Their supreme commander, the one who has ordered them, they're announcing that he would be born to a woman. Hebrews chapter 2 said that Jesus, we see, has been made for a little while lower than the angels. So there was a time when in his incarnation, in his humility, in his obedience, he lowered himself. And these angels came and heralded his birth. This is their champion. This is their commander. This is the one who gives them orders. This is the one to whom they say, command us. And he's born to this woman in Bethlehem. Why are biblical encounters with these angels in their glorious state characterized by fear on the part of the witnesses? Why so much fear? Well, partially because they're a mobilized army. And they're an army of creatures of higher ranking order than ourselves. So, I'm assuming they're bigger. They're imposing looking. Right? They're a higher ranking creature than we are. And often, as we look at accounts of angels in the Scripture, their weaponry is is visible. A flaming sword. And I wouldn't be surprised that the shepherds saw the angels' armament. This is an army. And I wouldn't be surprised if they saw their armament and they saw that these were terrible 
armed creatures. But I don't think that was the most terrifying thing. I think the most terrifying thing was that when they were in the presence of the angels, they were in the presence of beings that had a particular presence and bearing. See, we're accustomed to being with people like ourselves. We're used to talking to one another, being around one another, and we're kind of used to associating with people in our class. Maybe if we meet somebody more important, we might be fearful, we might have a little bit of trembling, but for the most part, we're, we feel safe. We feel safe particularly with other people because why? Because we know each other. See, I know you, you look at me, and I might think, well, that person's a little bit terrifying, that person's a little bit intimidating, and then I remember, oh yeah, that person's just like me. In what way? Well, I know you have a sinful heart. I know that when looking in the face of holiness, your head goes down. I know that you tremble when you think about purity. See, I know this because I'm the same way. And so when I'm around you, it's not so terrible. When you're in the presence of an angel, you're in the presence of a, of a being whose actions you're not familiar with, whose expressions are not familiar to you, because they're resolute, they're singular, they're terrifying, their obedience is perfect. So you can imagine an army that we could muster. Maybe you guys remember, uh, is it the Marine Color Guard, the ones you see on commercials, the guy with the sword and all that? You know what I'm talking about? And you look at those guys and they look very disciplined and very, very strong. Well, we couldn't produce, we couldn't, we couldn't put together a group of men armed with the kind of resolute, steadfast determination that would be seen on the faces of all of these angelic hosts. Do you understand? Completely determined, completely obedient, singular in their devotion to God. Never ambitious, never reviling. It even says in Second Peter that when angels wit witness us reviling and sinning against authority, they don't in turn go before God and revile us to Him because they don't sin in this way. Powerful. We, though, are contaminated with these sins. Some years ago, my wife was babysitting children in our home and we had a, a woman who brought her children to us and uh, one time she had, uh, she had seen a mark on her son's bottom and she thought, oh, what is that? She was afraid, so she took the, the child to the doctor, and the doctor looked at the child, and the doctor said, oh, that's not a problem, that's just a birthmark. So the woman brought the son to my wife, and she said, you know, I took him to the doctor because I was concerned about this thing, and it was just, it turned out to be a birthmark. Well, later on that day, Annie was changing the boy, and she thought, well, I wonder where this birthmark is. So she's looking, looking at his bottom to see where this birthmark is, right? She can't see anything. Where's the birthmark? And then she's looking, and then suddenly she realizes in the context of the rest of his body that his entire bottom is the birthmark. Do you understand? His entire bottom was a different pigment than the rest of his skin. And so she understood, now, okay, that's where the birthmark is. That's what's going on with this child. I was trying to think of how you'd say this correctly. 
and I think, I think I've got it, she could not see the tree because it was the forest. Do you follow that? She could not see the tree because it was the forest. Well, this is how we are in our rebellion, our rebellion against authority. It's so pervasive in our lives that we can't see the tree because of the forest. We think it's normal. And so when we read in the scriptures, we turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 and we read that Sarah, because she had faith in God, trusted God and called Abraham what? Lord. We think there's something wrong with Sarah. Really. When we read that, we think, what's Sarah's problem? What's the problem with those patriarchs anyway? Because we're so accustomed to the rebellion in our hearts and accepting it and living with it. It's familiar. It's a familiar sin to us. Let's look at our text this morning, Luke chapter 17, starting at verse 5. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They're making a request of Jesus. Increase our faith. So Jesus responds first by giving them a little word of encouragement. This is something that's true about faith, he said. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And that's a powerful statement about what faith is like. Then he, then he goes on and he tells a story that probably makes us all think, is this a riddle? What is he trying to say? It doesn't seem to make any sense to what he's talking about. And here's what he goes on to say. But which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you have done all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Okay, here's the request. Jesus, increase our faith. And here's the response. When you have a servant, you tell him this and, and you expect him to do it. And when you're told to do something, you should do it. We have trouble making sense out of it, the connection between the two. And the reason we have trouble making sense out of it is the same reason why we don't understand it when Peter says, command me. And it's the same reason why we don't understand it when the shepherds were terrified by the sight of the angels. We have little grid to understand authority because we are so contaminated by our hatred of it. I have a, a, a story, I recently heard a story about a Walmart employee here locally that someone overheard. They had been uh, rebuked by their manager. So their manager disciplined them, and it happened that this manager, as a female manager, disciplined this woman in front, of, in front of some customers. And this was the response of the employee. The employee said, she said, she's not my boss. She can't tell me what to do. You see anything wrong with that? Now, I know it's an extreme example, 
But it really does tell about our own hearts, doesn't it? Here's the manager telling the employee what to do. Here's the employee saying, she's not my boss. She can't tell me what to do. And that really does show and expose our hearts. It's a familiar sin. We know exactly how to rebel against commands. So what does the text say? Increase our faith. Jesus says, in order to understand how to grow in faith, you must understand your place. You must understand your place. Look with me. First he says they must know that they have authority, who they have authority over and how that authority is exercised, starting verse 7. But which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately, sit down and eat? Or will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? Increase our faith. Then he tells, us, tells them who has authority over them and how they are to live in relation to that authority. Verse 10. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. And in the context of what I've talked about, this, this should be familiar to us because it should, it should remind us of the centurion. What did he say? For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I know who's above me. I know who's below me. I know my place. I know how I'm supposed to act and how I believe in that context. And so he said to Jesus, I know who you are. I know your place. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to you. All you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, this man, this man has faith. So apparently the road to the increase of our faith starts with understanding who we are, where God has placed us, knowing and accepting where we are in his authority structure. Well, how bad, is it a, how bad of a sin is it to rebel against authority? There are a couple of, uh, of uh, chapters in the New Testament I want us to look at really quickly. One is Second Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter's warning about the false teachers that will come among the church. He says they will deny Jesus. They'll bring destruction on themselves. They'll follow their sensuality and their greed and their false words. Their judgment is not idle. They're going to be judged, he says. And in verse 4 he said, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, if he didn't spare the ancient world, if he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 6, but rescued Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep unrighteous, the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. In verse 10, look what it says. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring self-will, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Notice, notice these two sins that are set side by side, and they're called the especially sins. You see them? Especially those who do what? One is sexual sin. And the other is rebellion against authority. 
Now, do those two sins sound familiar to you? I mean, do you see those sins in our culture at all? Have you noticed our culture having any problem with sexual sins and sins concerning authority? I know sometimes you think that's all we talk about when we preach to you. And it is. And it will continue to be. Because these are the sins of our culture. This is the wickedness of our culture. This is the wickedness of our own hearts. And isn't it fascinating that those two sins would be seen together in the Scripture? I, thinking, about, thinking about sins that have to do with authority and sins that have to do with our sex and how, how connected they are, how interrelated they are. That's a whole other sermon, but it's certainly true. And they, they permeate our culture. They permeate our lives. He goes on and he says, Angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against these men before the Lord. And that's an amazing thing because these angels, these unfallen angels, and it's going to talk in a minute in Jude about the fallen angels, but these unfallen angels, they do not revile against sinful men to God. Even though it's scandalous, if you read 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10, you'll see that the angels are scandalized by men in our rebellion against authority. So even though they're scandalized, they don't revile against us. But these like unreasoning animals, these are the sinful men, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be, will in the destruction of those creatures will also be destroyed. Let's look at, at Jude, starting at verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting choice, choice of words for what they deny. They deny our Master and Lord. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now these angels referenced here are Satan and the demons. And their sin, as it's recorded here, is that they were ambitious malcontents, abandoning their proper place. They would not be content with their domain and their proper abode. And so they were cast out. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same manner, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Again, we have the same two sins as is talked about in Peter. Sexual sin and sin against authority. Rebellion. When we reject authority, we reject our place as both one over something and one under something in the structure of God, the structure that he has ordained. 
Now here's an interesting verse, but Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. What's the story of Michael and Moses and, and the devil? You know Moses died up on a mountain, right? And he died on a mountain because he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. He was only allowed to see it, right? Do you know why he wasn't allowed to see it? Do you remember? Because of the sin at a place called Meribah. And what did Moses do at Meribah that was disobedient to God? He was supposed to speak to the rock and water would come out, but instead he did what? He took the staff and he struck the rock twice. Now that just seems like such a, a, an insignificant thing that Moses would be denied he, uh, the promised land because he struck the rock instead of speaking to it. But this is what God says to Moses. He says, because you have not believed me and treated me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you will not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Because you have not believed me. Now let me ask you something. What did God mean when he said Moses didn't believe him? Moses struck the rock and water came out, right? Right? Gushed out, didn't it? Watered all the people. Moses didn't have any faith. Is that what it's saying? In essence, that is what it's saying. Because in essence, God is saying, you didn't believe me. And to not believe is what? No faith. You didn't believe me. And so Moses demonstrated an episode of no faith in the sense that he didn't believe water would... Not in the sense that he didn't believe water would come out of the rock, but in the sense that he thought he could do it better than God who had given him the command to do it. He stepped outside of his bounds. Water still came out of the rock. But Moses stepped out out of his bounds. We talk about faith in American evangelicalism all the time. We talk about faith all the time. How often do we talk about faith within the confines of the order which God placed us as his creatures? I think very seldom. We talk about faith to do all kinds of things, to raise more money, to get healed, to get rich personally, to have a bigger campaign, crusade, tent revival, whatever it is. But it's completely separated from the simple reality that faith is found in obedience to God in where he has placed us. So what does it say in verse 10 in Jude? And think about these words in terms of American Go ahead. Think about them in terms of American Christianity, American evangelicalism. Think about them that way. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. These men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feast. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds of, without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. 
We understand this. You understand these men because you have witnessed them and you have participated with them and so have I. We understand this very well. We are so contaminated by what by what's around us concerning God's authority that we think Benny Hinn and TBN will teach us about faith. Oh, but you say, I don't watch Benny Hinn and TBN. That's not me. No, maybe you don't turn that show on on your television, but the reality is you are completely immersed in the culture that produces it. And you can't see the tree because it is the forest. You're completely immersed in it. We are completely immersed in it. God says that this despising of authority is particularly wicked. So let's think this morning. Are we malcontents? Are we malcontents? Are we dissatisfied with where God has placed us? Are we constantly struggling to rule ourselves? Have we cast off our own responsibilities and become passive with our work? We say that we're saved by faith. Do you think that you can have saving faith and make claim to the righteousness of Christ while having no manifest obedience demonstrated by you in your place, in your domain, in your abode, do you think that you can do this? Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 8, after he heals the centurions, or after he speaks to the centurion. People who said they had faith, these are the people of God that he's talking to. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness in that place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out. Why? Because when he appeared to them, they did not believe in him. They did not understand his authority. They did not understand authority. They did not have faith. Are you in a crisis of faith today? Perhaps some of us should be in a crisis of faith. Perhaps you don't know where you are, what your domain is, where you reside in God's order. And perhaps it's because you have been so long connected to the rebellious culture around you and the wickedness of your heart has accepted it. If you go into the mall here in town, you'll see a kiosk. Any mall in the country that you'd go into, you'll find these kiosks, they're directories, right? And you look at the directory and there's a place on the directory that, that exactly represents where you're standing. And so there's usually a dot or an arrow, and what does it say? Three words. Is that what it says? You are here. 
right? Well, I'm going to ask you this morning, where is here for you? Where is here for you? We all saw Jeff ordained this morning to be an elder. Where is here now for Jeff? He's now a servant to the church, right? To lead as an elder. And so Jeff has responsibilities that he can't be passive on. And he has authority over him that he can't be rebellious against. You see? Where are you this morning? Where are you? If you had one of these signs to hold next to you, where would you say you are? Where is your place in God's prescribed authority structure? How are you understanding your faith in relation to obedience to God in this way? Are you a man? A woman? A husband? A wife? A son? A daughter? An employee? An employer? A student? A teacher? A government official? A citizen? Are you an elder? Are you a deacon? Are you a church member? Are you a pastor? Do you understand your faith in relation to where God has placed you and to your submittedness to Him in that place? Do you understand that connectedness to your being able to trust by faith in Jesus Christ for your righteousness? This is all of us. In each of these vocations, We have to exercise faith demonstrated by obedience, contentment, and trust. On the other hand, in each of them, the one who is assigned may become passive to their duties. As in the case of of a uh, master failing to command or a father failing to discipline his children and to run his household. Or we may become rebellious when we should be submissive. Because we are under authority as well. Remember the centurion. I am a man under authority, and I have men who are under me. And he understood perfectly the foundation of faith. Trusting God. Trusting God. He understood it perfectly. Do you see your place this morning? Do you love what you've been assigned? Do you love what you've been assigned? Do you love God for making you a woman? Do you love God for making you a man? Do you love God for making you a wife? Do you love God for making you a husband? Do you love Him for making you a child to the parents He's given you to? Do you love Him for making you an American? Do you love Him for bringing you to this church and making you a member here? Do you love God for these things? It's this very thing that we should love Him for. These are the very things we should rest in. This is where we approach God. This is our faith. Do you love Him for what He's done for you? Do you love Him for giving you Jesus Christ? Do you love to call Jesus your Master? and your Lord, unlike those men as, as listed in the, in the Scripture in Peter, who reviled against God. 
Do you love your assignment? Where are you? Do you want God to increase your faith? Submit yourself to what He has commanded you to do. And He will increase your faith. And you will grow. And you will have joy. Let's pray.